Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 87 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So as I begin this, it's April 22nd, and I'm in the final stages of editing my memoir, which I had Virginia McGregor, author extraordinaire, ghostwrite for me, and we've been editing it together and rewriting bits and pieces. And it's always interesting to me how a story comes about, and I've talked about this before, that telling a story, blogging a story, writing a book about a story are all very different ways of sharing the same thing. A podcast is whatever comes out of your mouth. It can be edited, but not changed. A blog can be cut and pasted and rearranged a bit, but it's a, a short version of something. There's a lot of room for alteration. A book, hundreds of pages of words, describing a series of events is a whole different beast. And I've learned so much in these last several weeks around the editing process of a, of a book. It's exciting and I'm, I'm enjoying it all. It does put me right back there though, as does the podcast. So editing the book takes me back to, you know, when Molly was dead and dying and all those initial times. And then doing the podcast takes me back to Roy. And, you know, I realize in so many ways what a huge piece he is of everything that's happened to me since 2009 and before maybe even, because prior to that, everything in my friendship with Amy was dictated by what she told me about Roy and his treatment of her. And you come to find out things about people as you, the more time you spend with them. And I've come to find out that <laughs> it's more of an illustration of my gullibility than it is their evil, I think, for me to have believed that each other was the liar. I believed everything Amy told me about Roy. And when he said, no, none of those things were true, I believed that. And then he told me things about Amy. And I believed what he said. And as I sit here and analyze the behavior of the two of them together, still to this day, after all that they did to their children and to me and to who knows who else, I think they deserve each other. I think Amy and Roy should get married and spend the rest of their lives together. I think that's what I think. Anyway, that's a funny way to start. And I started that way because I've gone round and round on how to share the remaining pieces of my friendship and relationship with Roy. I left off last episode when he was sort of still in the throes of his relationship with Carrie. I'll start here in 2018 when that relationship was coming to a close. I've mentioned before, he and I never really lost contact. And so he shared a lot with me about that relationship. Again, what he shared, I took to be true, could be totally different. Who knows? I realize now he would feel the same way about me, I think, but I'm publicly saying these things. If I'm lying, I'll be easily caught. I have nothing to gain by making up stories on this podcast. So in 2018, it was clear, it was clear that things were sort of winding down with him. And we had ended so abruptly at Molly's death. It had just ended and he was boom, quote unquote, in love with someone else that we didn't say goodbye even. Our closure was just as abrupt as Molly's death. No closure at all. Roy isn't a closure fan. He doesn't want closure. He strives to keep it open-ended. He has continuing relationships with a lot of women that he's been romantically involved with. One side of you could sort of brag about it, like, yeah, look at me. I'm still connected to all these women. But when I really think about it now and 
ponder the things he shared with me about the women that he still maintains contact with, I wonder if they're just as unsure about themselves as I have been. And it's more important for them to be connected to him than it is to feel good about themselves on that level. I know that sounds harsh, but that's kind of the reality, I think. I often wonder if his new girlfriends know the depth and the intensity with which he was with these other women that are still prevalent on his Facebook and all of that. Anyway, 2018 saw us begin to see more of one another. And there were times when I would say, yes, I'd like to come down for a weekend and he would arrange it to make it happen. And then I'd maybe change my mind or something would come up and I couldn't go. And then he would say, well, if you're not coming, then I'm going to go see Carrie. And I don't know if he said that to, to make me jealous or if it were just a fact. I do know that he was such a stickler for honesty that I wondered if Carrie knew anything about me that I was going to come down and visit or if she even knew that I existed. Because remember, he erased me completely in order to start that relationship so that she would only know what he was willing to divulge on his timeline. So we started to sort of communicate more and see one another. And this was prior to the settling of the lawsuit, prior to me starting the IVF journey again. And so our visits were nice. We would meet for lunch. Several times I actually went down to his new apartment. He had a big, beautiful new apartment. He had both his children living with him at the time. Any visit there was typically during the day when they weren't home. It was very, he was insistent that they not know he was spending time with me. And I couldn't really understand why, except now I think it has to do more with Amy than them. I think they're both pretty savvy young people and knew a lot more than Roy gave them credit for. So I never did see them during this time. I didn't see either of his children, although I did maintain contact somewhat via social media. Typically our get togethers were, were dinner and drinks or lunch, maybe a movie, nothing too significant. It was just staying connected. And that was fine. He was living his life and I was living mine. And I didn't know what was going to happen lawsuit wise. I was not stable at all. I was still actively drinking, heavily medicated. When the lawsuit settled in summer came of 2018, and I decided to go back to trying to have the baby, I had to go off all that medicine. I've talked about that before. And Roy was sort of a fairly significant piece of this. It really did seem to bother him that my mouth still hurt a lot and gave me trouble. You know, we just talked about these things on our visits. When I found out that I had brain tumors, this coincided with him telling me that he was seeing somebody and that he thought that perhaps he had met the love of his life. You know, and I countered with, I thought I was the love of your life. <laughs> so we met for lunch shortly after my, my tumor removal and I was bald and with a big scar and, you know, looking like hell, I'm sure. And what strikes me most in remembering that lunch is that he didn't remark. He didn't say, look at you all bald or how are you feeling? Nothing. He just said hi and sat down and ordered our food. And sometimes I would wait for him to say something in a multitude of ways. And he would just stay very sort of stoic and not say or do much until I made some kind of move. You know, maybe he was waiting for me to do something to sort of dictate what he should do. But <laughs> when the person that you would say you were in love with used to have long blonde hair and now she's bald, <laughs> you've got to say something. That was how I felt. That stands out at the time. But this particular lunch, I don't remember the name of the restaurant, but we were sitting up at a bar to eat and they had really good key lime pie for dessert. And this is where he let me know that he could no longer meet me or see me ever again because he had met the love of his life. But he could still text with me and, and I, he would keep me on Facebook, but I shouldn't reach out and all that. And, you know, I was a bit, what? 
Now, the only thing I had going for me at this time was that I was in the throes of brain surgery and, and I had to spend a lot of time at home. And, you know, I was back and forth to New York and just busy with my health. So I didn't have a lot of time to sort of pine away and feel sad about this. And he wouldn't tell me who it was. I'm not telling you, you'll have opinions. I'm not telling you. It's someone from our past. And I had a bit of recognition in my head that I think I knew who it was, but I couldn't come up with her name. And so when I finally saw his Facebook posts about her, Super Bowl Sunday is what I remember the most. I realized, oh my God, it's Lori. And she was the woman that early on, 2009, he and I were first together. He was spending a lot of time on the phone with, and he denied that there was anything going on, but I know him now. He lays the foundation for his, for his next relationship years before he even knows if he's going to need a next relationship. He doesn't happen to meet people. He, he sets it up. And this was an example of that. When I saw who it was, I was just like, ah. So I gave him, I called him out on it. Of course, you didn't want me to know. You knew I'd call you out on it. Really? You know, what does your good friend Bob think about this? Because this was a girl, a woman that his quote unquote best friend dated for a long time. And I think there's some kind of bro code that you don't date each other's exes. I don't know. I just found the whole thing weird. So it makes me think there's more to the story, but it's not my story. So we had some connection, but not much. I would look at the posts and I'd cry sometimes in the night. But I'm going through all this brain surgery and then Kenny's kidney transplant and all these things are happening. And so I don't have a lot of time to worry. They were supposed to go together to Italy. And I messaged him shortly after this trip that they were going to go on and said, you know, how was your trip to Italy? And he said, well, I went by myself. And he fills me in very briefly that, that he and Lori have broken up. And initially he says that he knew something was up and he put it all onto her that she was cheating on him, that she blocked him. She started blocking him. Later on in our friendship, in more recent years, he would say, he would threaten me sometimes and say, if you're not, if you don't cut it out, I'm going to block you just like I blocked Lori. So who knows who blocked who? I don't know. At the time, he was sort of putting all of that on her. I, of course, felt bad for him. And I sort of made a joke. That's too bad. I would have gone to Italy with you. And he laughed because, you know, Amsterdam and, and all of that. I just said, well, then we can get together for lunch again. And so it was summer now. It was like maybe June. So he made some plans. He was moving. He had bought a house. And so we met at a restaurant in his new town and had lunch. And then we spent the weekend, well, not the weekend, but a night and a day in a nearby town, a coastal town with a lot of museums and things to do. And I remember that he was just very standoffish, just sort of, just really, really sort of waiting for me to make a move or do something. And I know now, and I knew then that this was his way of saying, well, I didn't initiate anything you did, or I didn't want to get back together. You did like, it was his way of really keeping out of responsibility for anything that happened. So many examples of this. Now we ended up just walking around the town and having dinner and having drinks and getting pretty toasty. We had a wonderful time when it was all said and done, we were heading back to our respective homes. He was still in his apartment. Although he did show me his new house. I said, well, I'd love to hang out again, if you'd like. I don't have the desire to be with anybody. I don't want to start, you know, new relationships or anything like that. And he said, well, you're never going to have them with me. That ship has sailed. You lost your chance. Those are the kinds of things he would say. It was clear to me that any connection I would have with Roy from here on out, even if it were romantic or physical, did not mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean we're together. It doesn't mean anything. You're not my girlfriend. I'm not your boyfriend. And these words would come up again and again over the course of our connection, the next couple of years. And so began the next chapter in my connection to Roy. We get together, I don't know, once a month, maybe not much more than that. He eventually moved into his new home. We would typically meet there and then go do something. He wanted to get to know the new area. 
I think I was his crash test dummy for restaurants and museums and things like this. You know, I talked a lot about where I was at. I confided in him with so many things that I realize now was a huge mistake because that's power to somebody like Roy. He now has your deepest desires and loves and hurts and vulnerabilities and can turn those around in a heartbeat and use them as a dagger. And that would come to fruition much later on in this piece of our journey. We did do some talking about Molly. I found out very quickly, however, that he had no desire to be sympathetic or even empathetic around Molly. There were times that his words were hurtful and I would start to cry. And he would look at me like, what, what? Oh, you're going to cry? And I'd say, you know, since Molly died, I don't have a good handle on my emotions. And he'd go, oh, there you go. Pull the dead kid card again. It would stun me into silence. It was almost like getting slapped across the face. You don't quite know what to do. And initially you're silent. And then you think, okay, I don't want that to happen again. I have to fix it. I have to be careful what I say or do. So here I am trying to change my behavior because he said this horrible thing, pulling the dead kid card. So he was still friends at that time with Wendy, who had lost her daughter, Haley. And I remember sharing these things with her, that he would say these kinds of things. And she, by the time we had spent enough time together for him to feel comfortable saying these things to me, I had found out that she knew that we were spending time together. Roy had forbidden me, do not tell anybody. Nobody knows about this. And he just didn't want anyone to know that he was spending time with me. And, you know, I guess I shrugged it off at the time, but he had nothing to lose by, you know, he didn't have anyone to hide me from. That's how I looked at it. He was single. He didn't have a girlfriend or something. You know, I don't, it was just bizarre. In true Roy fashion though, he did still have connections. He, he invited a woman from his past. I remember when we were first, first together, he showed me a picture of him and this girl. I'll call her Elizabeth. And he says, you know, I should have married her. It's kind of a weird thing to say when you're with another woman. <laughs> oh, she's the woman I should have married. And she had stayed in and out of his life since college age, 30, 40 years. They maintained contact. I remember one summer I was at Princeton camp and Roy had come down and he spent time visiting Elizabeth. I mean, he was down there with me, but visiting with her, you know, like just this keeping these people in, in his life. And so he invited her up for a weekend at his house and he invited Carrie. So I knew that that he still had significant relationships in his life. Again, there's no judgment here. I knew about them. I believe they did not know about me. And I think, again, that goes to the narrative of Roy and what my role and function was in his life. It's amazing sometimes, I looked at Roy as a lifeline. And when your lifeline is a stem full of thorns and, and yet you hold on to it anyway, I don't say that as a judgment on the kind of person that Roy is. I say it on the treatment I received from him. So began our next sort of connection. And in the more time we spent together, the more room there was for old hurts to arise. And that's not surprising. You talk about things, things evoke memories, memories come up on Facebook. He had finally made an album of our trip in Amsterdam. We had kept a journal of the trip. The thing that struck me most is we had, we had two very, very romantic nights there. We talked about them all the next day, just these incredibly romantic nights that, you know, lasted into the morning, just romance beyond belief. When I wasn't stressing out about Molly and Gracie and being away, I was just swept up in it. And in his summary of the vacation, these two particular incidences, he claims that he was too drunk to remember. So Barb had to tell me all about it. And that wasn't how it happened at all. You can't spend an entire day looking at tulips, talking about the night before, if you don't remember it, it was just a bit stunning to me. This exact same thing happened a couple of times in this section of our connection again. 
I refrained from telling Roy that I loved him because I knew that it wasn't an appropriate thing, that he wouldn't want to hear it. There were times, however, that I did say that I was in many ways still in love with him. And there were a couple of times that he said it back to me. One time in regard to, he had had Elizabeth come spend the weekend at his new house. And I was just, I didn't understand if they were together or not. And and he had this new bedroom, guest bedroom bed or whatever. And so I said, oh, did Elizabeth think it was comfortable? And he was like, she slept here. And I got up to leave because I just said, look, I don't need to stay. You have somebody now, I'm, I'm going. And he just looked at me like, you're not my girlfriend. You know, I'm not your boyfriend. It doesn't matter. But it, on some level, it did matter. But of course, I stayed because I didn't want to lose my connection to Roy. Another time he was supposed to go see her, I think. We had had a weekend planned and he canceled it because he was going to go see Elizabeth. And then that got canceled at the last minute. And so I went down. We drank a ton of alcohol and had another one of those connections. And during that this time, it was around Christmas time, I think, of 2000. 19. He said, I, you know, I take it back. You know, I'll never, I'll never feel about anyone the way I feel about you. And I remember being stunned by it. And then in the morning he apologized for passing out and leaving me in a lurch or whatever. And I'm like, you don't remember our conversation? What conversation? And again, denies that he remembers any of it. And there was another time where he told me that he loved me. And again, woke up in the morning and denied that as well. Denied remembering saying it. So was this somebody that only spoke his truth when he was drunk? Was he denying it because he remembered and didn't want to be held accountable for it? So he had to cover his actions quickly. I don't know. I do know that it just left me so off balance and off kilter because (laughs) pathetic little me just, you know, wanted him to love me. And talking to Kenny the other day about all of this, you know, it still hurts Kenny. I'm still Kenny's person. And even sharing all this in a podcast, there are many people, some of you listening now who probably think this is a horribly cruel thing to do to Kenny. He doesn't have to listen and he knows that he doesn't have to listen. And we've talked about all these things in our private way, but I I can't ever be with Kenny again if he doesn't know all of it. I can't withhold any secrets and say to Kenny, yes, I love you. And I choose to be with you. I'm choosing to be with Kenny. Now we are roommates and we share a child. So we're parents, we're co-parents. I don't have the ability or the capacity to be in love with anybody. I don't think ever again, quite honestly. And I don't have any desire to, you know, I have a lot of friends my age that are divorced or single or newly single. And oh, I just want to just want a relationship. I just want to have sex. I just, and I, I, oh, I've just had such decimation around romance and love. Some brought on myself and some, some dumped on my head, like, like a bucket of mud that I am fine. I mean, I'm 59, so I could live another 40 years. Maybe I'll feel differently when I'm 69, right? I don't know. But right now today, I, I don't have it in me. It's all I have to love Gracie and Jack. I give them everything I have and it exhausts me at the end of the day sometimes. It's just harder sometimes not to feel anything. So summer of 2019 through the majority of my pregnancy with Jack, I had this relationship and friendship with Roy. Nothing like it was you know, prior, but still lots and lots of quality time together, lots of conversations, lots of continued red flags for me. And in this process, he begins sort of spending time online and in person with a couple of other women. And he's very honest with me about it. And that's fine. I've been told a thousand times now that I'm not his girlfriend and I never will be, that I lost my chance. And so I just continue along. Why do I continue along? I don't know. When the words come out of my mouth and I say what I did, I just want to shake myself. But I just invested so much, so much into 
Roy and I lost so much because of it that I just feel, feel strongly still that that can't just disappear. Then it was all for nothing. And I realized it isn't all for nothing. It's what we learn and take from our experiences that give them value. It's what I take from it, not what I can continue to hold on to. During the times that Roy would describe to me these women that he wanted to date, one lives right in his town. And his version is that he decided she wasn't right and it wasn't going to work and it just didn't work. Something went wrong on some level or she found something out. I don't quite remember. And I came into the picture and I'm quite sure he must have painted me pretty negatively. He just alluded that I was the reason it wasn't going to work. I don't know how that could be, but at any rate, there was that. And then he had this person that he communicated with online and he had met her in Italy the time that Lori stood him up and didn't go. He'd been a couple of times, I believe. And he went on and on about, he had met this, this woman and, you know, she'd had this terrible accident. She had all these physical issues and, you know, she'd had troubles with alcohol. And she just, he just told me all these very personal things about her and that she reminded him of me. And I'm like, okay. But he was very proud of the fact that he helped her out. He helped her. He was there for her. And, you know, if the group was moving too fast, he went slow with them and, and he wasn't sure which one of them he might want to date. He really liked the both. And I, you know, I went in one ear and out the other, but he had told me all of that pretty early on, you know, in 2019, he was pretty clear now that he had chosen the person he was going to hopefully date someday. He also made it very clear after what sort of went on with the woman he dated locally, that he didn't want a local girlfriend, that there was too much responsibility, like too public. People can see too much that he wouldn't get stuck into that again, that he was never going to have a live-in relationship or marriage, that long distance was perfect because he could not have to be in it all the time, which I thought funny at the time, because that was one of his biggest criticisms of us was that he'd come home to an empty house. All of this was going on during the time that we spent time together. The culmination of our connection started after the birth of Jack. So Kenny and I go through the whole, I go through the whole IVF process. I include Kenny in it. As I've said before, the dream to have a baby was me. It wasn't about you need to reconcile with Kenny and have a baby together and yada, yada, yada. If Kenny had wanted nothing to do with it, I still would have done this. I still would have taken this journey and I would be the mother now, I hope, to an adopted embryo or donor egg, donor sperm, you know, who knows how it could have worked. For the majority of the beginning of the pregnancy, I didn't say anything to worry about it. I didn't tell anybody. I wasn't certainly going to tell him. And the main reason my doctor had me keep it secret was to, you know, stay away from judgment. If anything went wrong, people love to judge. And boy, does Roy like to point out your faults. At least he did with me. I hope he's different. If you're listening and he's wonderful to you, then good. I'm glad. Another piece of the puzzle is I met Roy at like a vintage bazaar, like a craft fair. And when I walked in, he was talking to these two women and I stood there and they're chatting away, chatting away. And he doesn't introduce me. And they both look at me and look back and look at me and look back. And then they leave and everything. And I just look at him like, why didn't you introduce me? And he says, well, they're my next door neighbors and I, I don't want them to know you. So it was just off. It was just the most awkward off thing ever that this could happen. But again, I said nothing. I was soon going to have a baby and, and Roy never wanted kids. At least that's what he says. He claimed he never wanted kids or his first wife didn't want kids. So he made it so he couldn't get her pregnant. And, but he adopted Amy's kids. So maybe he did want kids. I don't know. I remember shortly after Molly died, we talked about he and I having a child. It was like a two week conversation. 
And I think the clincher for me was we were talking about it and he sent me a picture of a woman pregnant and she was like this gorgeous 25 year old pregnant woman in like a slinky sleek gown with her beautiful pregnant belly. And I remember thinking, I am 53. <laughs> if that's what he thinks I'm going to look like pregnant, <laughs> no way. You know, it was just this awkward, weird, weird picture. It was one of those things. I remember it. That's how much it stuck with me. When I finally did tell Roy I was pregnant, we were getting to the point where he was really ready to start dating and having a relationship. And it was going to be a, a time where we stepped back again, where we didn't ever see one another. We just communicated on the phone and all this. And so I thought I was fine with that. Jack arrives and there's all that news coverage. And I think the news coverage must have triggered something in Roy because he just became, you know, I never want to see you again. You know, I can't believe that he treated me like I had jilted him somehow, that I had fed him all these lies and that, you know, just get away from me. You're disgusting. I hate you. We had horrible fights, horrible, horrible fights on the phone and social media. And then the next day he'd be completely fine and everything was fine. Like, what do you mean? I'm not, you know, I'm not mad at you. What do you, why would I be mad at you? Like, it was just very unsettling. And of course I had just had a baby. I was all hormoned up and I had a bit of postpartum anxiety. So, you know, our paths were set. They were parallel paths. He was going to live his life. I was going to live mine. They weren't going to intersect. I just wanted some closure. I wanted to give him space. And he has some things of mine. He has a lamp and a basin and a pitcher, things that belonged to relatives of mine. I still have some clothing down there that he has of mine. I just said, look, can we just meet so I can get my things back? He would respond to me with just such hateful, hateful emails that I, I was just taken aback by it. It was at this point that I found out just how much he had shared with Wendy and another woman about what was going on with us and, and the hateful stuff that they, he was sending to them currently. I couldn't wrap my head around it. And Wendy is solid and she was very perfectly willing to call Roy out on it. And I put a Facebook post about narcissism on my page. It was just a post. And I tagged Wendy in it. And I remember hiding the post from anyone that might know Roy or whatever, because I just didn't want it to hurt his feelings, I guess. But because I had tagged Wendy in it, he saw it on her page, I guess. And so all of a sudden I'm blocked. So it's about two months after Jack's birth. And I'm in a frantic bit of a panic because I just don't want him completely blocked from my life. And how am I going to live without him is how I felt. I need to reiterate here. It's not like, how am I supposed to live without you in some romantic term? It's like a lifeline thing. It's like a life or death. It's a very unhealthy, it's a trauma bond is what it is. I just wanted closure. And so sometimes he, I would call and he would pick up the phone. Sometimes he would answer a text. He had blocked me on the phone though. So I had to either have to call from a different phone or whatever. So I just kept saying, I just want my stuff back. And he, at this time, at this point, he was now actively pursuing and seeing his new out-of-state girlfriend. I'll call her Genevieve. And so, so now he's seeing Genevieve and he's writing me these horrifyingly hurtful, disgusting emails and all I want is my stuff back. I even offered to send someone else to get my stuff. And he would write back with just this nasty email. So this terrible back and forth started happening. And so I'm going to own this. I got so angry that I sent his new girlfriend an email with a copy of my email requesting my stuff and his response to me. And I simply said, this is what you're getting into. You don't know me, but here's the reality. I'm sure this will decimate any hope I ever have of speaking to Roy in a meaningful way again, but I don't want you to get hurt. And that was that. And so of course, 
that got him to call me on the phone. And it was one of those rageful conversations. And I, again, I have to say, I, I can't blame him. I'm, you know, I'm messing with his life. I didn't like that, you know, Doug and Annette had messed with mine and I was doing the very thing I claimed to hate. I'm owning this. I am owning this. I wasn't trying to hurt Genevieve or manipulate her at all. That would be one key difference. A little bit of time goes by and we have a conversation. He answers the phone one day and he's all nice to me. Very, very nice. It's right after the email. I wonder why he's being so nice to me. Well, what I didn't know was he was in a courthouse filing a restraining order. The crux of this is that restraining orders, I realize now, are how the Amy's and the Roy's of the world work. He's not afraid of me. and He never was. I didn't know it at the time. I called a couple of more times over the next couple of days. and He would always pick right up. Hello? Is there anything else you want to tell me? And I didn't know what he meant. I'm like, no, I don't think so. And then, of course, I get it in the mail, this summons for a restraining order. So I just, you know, it was full circle. I'm like, oh my gosh, it was a, stra- a restraining order that sucked me into the divorce in the first place of Amy and Roy. And now <laughs> he was claiming that he was afraid of me. The biggest issue I have with restraining orders is people that file for them that don't need them. And Amy and Roy are flawless at this. They are masterful. Amy was never once afraid of Roy. She knew that would get him out of the picture so she could keep his stuff and, you know, and move on and start a relationship with someone else. The two times I went for restraining orders against them, they were threatening to throw bricks through my windows and hurt my kids. I was afraid. I still wouldn't have thought to, to go for a restraining order. I think I would have had an attorney write a letter. That would have been my path. But all those years ago, that was Roy's suggestion. We have to do this. And so it became this power struggle in the, in the restraining order system. Women primarily get battered and decimated by men who walk through restraining orders to do it. And fake restraining orders do nothing but exhaust the legal system in the criminal justice system. So I had to make up a story, you know, that I got a traffic ticket so I could drive down, you know, to the district court in the North Shore of Massachusetts to fight a restraining order against a man who was not afraid of me at all. It was to prove a point. And as I pulled up to the courthouse there, he was walking in and he just shot me a look like, ha, I got you. It was very, very telling. The most telling piece of that restraining order, however, and I have the recording of it, is toward the end of it, the judge isn't buying it. You know, he listens to Roy, he listens to me. I brought the emails that I sent, the whole thread. Roy had only brought the nasty one I wrote. I brought the whole email thread. He asked questions back and forth. Roy brought up that I was writing a book. Like, you know, it was just, it was just, I couldn't even believe it. And he left the courtroom to, to take a phone call and then came back. And I believe now that he was talking to Amy because he said at the end of his time to talk was that Amy wants you to know that she is very, very afraid of Barb, that she's threatened by her. Please tell the judge that she's, that she's an unsafe human being and that she's threatening to me and I'm scared of her. I'm pausing here because I haven't spoken to her other than a consoling text thread over a mutual friend who passed away. That is it since 2011, since she cost me my job, not one word, zero. I stood there dumbfounded because Roy's admonition of me was she had a restraining order against this woman and she reached out and sent her messages. What I should have said was, you know, she had a restraining order against Roy for beating the crap out of her, but he didn't mention that. And I didn't even think to say it. I couldn't even believe that after all I had done for Roy, that he had the audacity to stand in front of a judge and belittle me for talking to somebody that I had had a restraining order against. 
when he talked to her every day and they had had it both ways. She had had one against him. He had had one against her. And I realized then that the Roy that I thought I knew did not exist, did not exist, had never existed because this was just beyond comprehension to me. I think the judge must have seen the look on my face because he sort of pushed it like it didn't matter. You know, why would Roy be reaching out to find someone that I had a restraining order against to belittle me? You know, like he didn't give a lot of context. Had I been able to think on my feet, I would have replied with, I'm not quite sure why he's making me look bad. So that's the last time I saw his face in person was in the courtroom there. He still has my stuff. It's all I wanted was my stuff back. It was an ugly, ugly reality for me. And I remember sitting and he has a friend, a friend group. I don't know any of his friends, but there are some mutual friends. Like, like somebody knows somebody that I know, knows somebody that knows him. And so there was a woman that I'm Facebook friends with that saw a lot of this unfold on Facebook. And she reached out to just warn me about him a little bit. Like, I don't know him real well, Barbara, but I know that I'm worried about you. You're far too tender for this. And so I called her from the courtroom that day to explain what had happened. In Massachusetts, they tell you, they don't make you leave without telling you. So they just said, look, I'm not following through on this. This isn't a valid complaint. And I'm quite sure that that is not what Roy wanted to hear. He did tell us to leave each other alone. That's not a problem. So that was September of 2021. So almost two years. I'm sharing all of this because it is amazing to me what I was willing to put up with in that relationship. And in my tender bad moments, what I know I would still be willing to put up with in that relationship. I'm baffled. (laughs) And I don't understand how Amy and Roy can feel okay about that. I mean, I guess I don't have to understand it. Amy had no trouble going to a superintendent of a school district and lying about me. (laughs) I shouldn't wonder about any of it, but I do. I do. I wasn't even sure I was going to share all of this on a podcast because it just, it's public. (laughs) Everyone listening can now feel bad for me or decide they can't hang out with me anymore. I don't know. In the two years, almost two years that have gone by, I'm getting there. All I can do is what I can do. I want to be a good mother to Jack. I want to be focused and present for him. And I will say that those moments and those things that happened to me really did slam a door in my heart over thinking that I need Roy in my life. I never, ever wanted it to be this way. I certainly didn't see it this way. I certainly wouldn't have given up all that I gave up and all that I lost in being a part of his life had I thought it would end like this. The thing with people that have these tendencies is that you believe that you're the one that's different. Every woman that Roy talks about, he disparages and calls a psycho and crazy. And he publicly jokes about these things, or he did when I knew him. I don't see his page anymore, so I don't know. I thought I was different and I wasn't. So a thousand tiny steps, you know, a thousand tiny steps to joy. That's where I think I need to go next. So I sit here in 2023 with a two-year-old beautiful boy, a relationship with Kenny that's as unstable and unsure as ever. The stable piece is that we really are there for each other. We have each other's back. I can read my memoir out loud to him in the editing process and know that he'll just accept what's said without criticism or judgment, even though some of the words are ugly to hear. He's a good father. I think that's my favorite piece of it. And it's really why I couldn't leave Gracie and Molly and go to Roy or bring Gracie and Molly to Roy. 
I've watched him be a father. I've watched him be a son to his father. There's nothing I can say in a podcast to accurately describe either of those dynamics. I don't know how he acts in person to his children, but I know what he says about them to a lot of people. This common friend I have was at a big dinner party that he was at and just listened to him disparage his kids. How is that even fair when what I know of those two kids is they're kicking ass in life. They're really kicking ass. They're doing amazing things. I don't know. I thought this season of the podcast might have a few more episodes, but I think really this is where, this is where I put the thousand tiny steps to dead Molly to rest. I will ache every day with a desire to go back and do it over. I will ache every day to go back to the summer of 2005 and have everything that unfolded from them unfold differently. But I can't. I will say I have learned so much in this process, in this podcasting process. I'm not ending the podcast, by the way, but I do believe that I have learned so much and that this was a piece of it, that sometimes you have to put it out there to really learn from it, to really put the words into the into the public vernacular, into the realm of, of realism, right? And, and say the words out loud. I've thought a lot about this particular episode and I just thought it best to share it as openly and honestly as I can. So you're my listeners. Some of you have been listening since day one. Some of you are binging up to this point. What I would love to hear from those of you listening in real time are thoughts and ideas on what you might like me to talk about next. As always, anything I talk about will have a story of my life in it somehow. I would love suggestions. Who would you like to have me interview? I am in love with the podcasting process, and I love the people that I've met and will continue to meet. And I appreciate all of you that have given feedback to me around all of these stories. It's embarrassing to be me sometimes. But when I really look at victim shaming, the narrative that Roy has painted of me is that I am some pathetic psychopath that he made the misfortune of meeting. And when I think of the hours I spent away from my family helping him, you know, I can't undo what he says or thinks. I won't be victim shamed into being silent. I'll own my flaws. I'll own my mistakes. I'll own the commandments that I broke. I'll own it. But I will not take responsibility for the actions and deeds and words of others. I won't. I've spent an entire day recording one 45-minute podcast episode. It's been, it's been one of those frustrating days. So I want to thank you for listening. I know that this probably wasn't an easy one to listen to either. As always, be good to yourself. Be good to yourself, even when you hate yourself. Be good to someone else. Be good to someone else, even when you hate yourself. Don't be bad to them, making believe you're being bad to yourself. I've done that sometimes in my life. Don't do that. And as always, 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 have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.